Well, we can, we can blame Chara Donahue. She wrote the article about ten stories in the Bible that pastors avoid because they're too strange or too difficult. We've plowed through seven of them so far. We, we dealt with King Saul seeking a witch to contact his dead mentor. We worked our way through two bears mauling 42 people to death after they made fun of Elisha's bald head. The ground swallowing up 250 leaders in Israel who questioned Moses uh, was one of our topics. We chronicled Rizpah, who watched her two boys die and then stood guard over their uh, decaying bodies night and day for five months to keep the birds from devouring their flesh. And then there was Ehud, who stabbed an overweight King Eglon, and the sword sunk so deep into the belly of the Moabite ruler that Ehud never got his sword back. And let's not forget Gehazi and his greedy cash grab after Elisha healed Naaman. Then last week, it was Athaliah's reign of terror as the queen mother of the land of Judah. The series is called Ten Unpreached Sermons. We've used the titles that Chara Donahue, the author, provided in the article. We've preached them in the order that she listed them. That brings us to today. That brings us to part eight, the naked prophet. That's what I'm talking about. We find this week's obscure tale in Isaiah 20. You can turn there if you have your Bible. Bibles on the bottoms of the chairs in front of you. You also have your apps on your phone. Uh, Isaiah, the first of the major prophets, so-called because of the length of the writings, not necessarily because they are more important. The book of Isaiah, interestingly enough, the book of Isaiah is a microcosm of the entire Bible. It has 66 chapters corresponding with the 66 books of the Bible. It divides neatly into two sections, 39 chapters, which deal with law and judgment, corresponding with the 39 books of the Old Testament. And the final 27 chapters are a message of hope and comfort, which correspond with the 27 books of the New Testament, which proclaim the love and the grace of God. Isaiah 20 is a tiny chapter. Only six verses. So let's read the whole kit and caboodle, as mom used to say. And remember, we can blame Chara Donahue for this. Verse 1. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, I mean, that's an amazing start right there. When Sargon, king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it. At the same time spake the Lord by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from off thy loins and put off thy shoe from thy foot. And he did, walking naked and barefoot. The Lord said, Like as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead the Egyptians prisoners and the Ethiopians captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And they shall be 
afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and of Egypt, their glory, and the inhabitant of this isle shall say in that day, Behold, such is our expectation, whether we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? Now the word buttocks, in case you're wondering, is used all of three times in Scripture. And in the original language, it means seat. Isn't that fascinating? So God asks Isaiah to parade his naked body through the streets for three years. It's not just a mad dash down Main Street. We're talking three long years without your duds. The the prophets were interesting guys, for sure. And, And God historically has asked his prophets to do some strange things. He told Ezekiel to lay on his left side for 390 days and on his right side for 40 days in Ezekiel chapter 4. Hosea, the prophet, in the book that uh, is named after him, Hosea, was instructed to marry a prostitute. Elijah hid himself in a cave and God used a bird to feed him. In 1 Kings 17, in Jeremiah 13, the prophet is instructed to soak an undergarment in the river and then hide it under a rock. Ezekiel ate a scroll or a book in chapter 3. One chapter later, God told him to cook his barley cakes over human excrement. It's all right there. In Ezekiel 4, verse 12, you can look it up. Hey, it's a fun book, and the prophets were an interesting group. They were certainly unique, a little edgy at times. And here in chapter 20 of the book that bears his name, God asked Isaiah to illustrate impending judgment by walking around stark naked for three whole years. It's an attention-getter, isn't it? I mean, we just read six verses, and all you remember is the word buttocks. (laughs) And in reality, that's the purpose of the bizarre things that the prophets would be asked to do. They were here to get the attention of the people. The prophets were called to speak forth the word of God to get the word out to a lost people. And God was willing to use any means available to unstop the dull ears and to open the blind eyes of a lost people. The prophets were God's messengers. They were not around to foretell the future. They were here to give people a clear choice between the way of God and the way of the world. And in order to do that, they would often tell the end result of those who did not choose the way of the Lord. God used a naked Isaiah to proclaim the message that judgment will lay us bare. Verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah 20 express this clearly. The Lord said, like as my servant Isaiah has walked 
naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians' prisoners and the Ethiopians' captives, young and old, naked and barefoot. Isaiah's nakedness pictured how the people would be left with nothing as they were led away captive if they did not hearken, if they did not hearken unto the voice of God. Judgment, of course, is a recurring theme in Scripture. I imagine if you were writing the Bible, it would be a, you would see it as important as well. And whenever you read of a wine press in the Bible, we hear about that from time to time, whenever you read of a wine press in the Bible, it's a passage about judgment. The ancient wine press was a large basin where, where people would tread grapes. They would hold on to ropes above them and stamp their feet and the, the juice would run into containers on the sides of the large basin. There are lots of references to the wine press in the Bible, 18 to be exact, and almost all of them refer to God's judgment. Revelation 14.19 says, The angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Isaiah 63.3 says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Revelation 19.15 Out of my mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it I should, he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Revelation 14.20 And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even until the horses' bridles by the space of a thousand and 600 furlongs. The message of the wine press is clear. It's a message of judgment. And the prophets spoke loud and clear. Their message was a clarion call to repent. It was a desperate cry to change your evil ways. It was a warning that things were about to change. It was God serving notice. A day of reckoning. Is coming. The New Testament speaks of two judgments, two separate judgments. One is for believers, it's known as the judgment seat of Christ. The other is the judgment of the unbelieving, or the judgment of the wicked, and it's known as the great white throne judgment. 1 Corinthians 3. Verses 11 through 15 is the judgment that we will face as believers. Let's talk about this one first. Now, now when we read this, it can, it can cause fear in, in some believers. Uh, it happens when we fail to realize that this is a judgment only of reward. It's not a judgment for salvation. Everyone in this judgment that we're about to read about, will go to heaven. It's exclusively for believers and deals only with degree of reward. 
Again, 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 11, it says, No other foundation uh, can any man lay other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That establishes the fact that everybody in this judgment is saved. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ, gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. Every man's work, the word manifest means reveal. Every man's work will be revealed, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And fire speaks of judgment. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work shall abide, or if any man's work shall endure, which he has built thereupon, then he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned up, then he shall suffer loss. Now hear me, church. But he himself shall be saved so as by fire. So this deals with the, the, the life believers live after they're saved. We do not work for our salvation, but once we're saved, we must work out our salvation. Salvation impacts our life. Can you say amen to that? At least it, it should. I guess it does so to varying degrees. Hence, the believer's judgment. But he himself shall be saved. So the wood, hay, and the stubble that are mentioned in that passage refer to the works that we do that have no eternal value. There are things like our bank account, the kind of car that we drive, our leisure activities, our hobbies, and a hundred other assorted activities and possessions that occupy us here on earth but mean nothing to the kingdom of God. Wood, hay, and stubble are the things we do in this life that provide ourselves with comfort and convenience. They may not be evil, but they're not eternal either. When the fire of judgment comes, they will burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. The gold, silver, and precious stones refer to works that will last on into eternity. These are our works that will survive the fire of the judgment, of the believer's judgment, and endure on into eternity. So what might these things be? I happen to have a list. All the times that we share Christ with someone. Regardless, by the way, of their response. That's not your part. So all the times you share Christ with someone adds to your reward in heaven. Every time you invite someone to church, it, it counts toward our eternal reward. Every Sunday school class you taught, every ministry you participated in, from parking lot greeter to nursery worker to deacon board member, you were working to forward the gospel. Every prayer you pray is an eternal deposit. Every dollar you gave to the work of the kingdom is an eternal investment. 
every charitable deed, every cup of cold water offered in the name of Jesus that advances the work of the Lord or presents someone with even a glimpse of Jesus. Every track you pass out, every soul you encourage, every time you you share your story to connect someone else with God's story, you're storing up reward in heaven. Anything and everything that puts a smile on the face of God is a deposit on the other side of eternity. And what what a great way to live a life, by the way, with eternity in focus. And God sees it all. He has a record book. He has a a ledger where it's all recorded and documented for that great day of reckoning at the judgment seat of Christ. And I'm sure at that judgment seat of Christ there will be things that we did that we don't even remember. Perhaps things we are unaware of that impacted people throughout our lives. But God will have an accurate record. And we will be rewarded accordingly. I reiterate, everyone at this judgment is saved. This is a judgment for reward only. But there will be another judgment void of such a happy ending. I do find it interesting that the judgments are separate. I remember playing baseball in high school. And as the the season started, there would be a number of practices. And then they would post a list in the locker room of those who made the team and those who didn't. Both groups would be present as the list came out. It was uncomfortable and awkward and difficult. Imagine being together as our eternity is decided. Seeing loved ones who missed the cut. So God in His infinite wisdom held two separate events, two separate judgments. The judgment seat of Christ, the believer's judgment, uh, happens, I believe, in heaven when the tribulation is taking place here on earth. The judgment of the wicked, however, happens way later. After the millennium, at the end of the age. It's it's found, in fact, almost at the end of the Bible. Revelation is the Bible's final book. It contains 22 chapters. And it's not until chapter 20 where we find the judgment of the wicked. It's as if the door is being held open until the last possible moment. As if to say, come. Come now. Come before it's too late. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. This is the judgment of the wicked. It says, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead which were in it. 
Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I believe this passage tells us that there will be three books used at the final judgment, the judgment of the wicked. It clearly states in the verse, one of the verses that we just read, it says the books were open. That's plural. And, and another book, singular, was open. This is what I believe the three books are. The first book is the book of life. This one is clearly listed. There's no doubt about the reality of the book of life. This is the roster of all who know Jesus. And there are other passages in the Bible that, uh, that refer to the book of life. Luke 10.20 is one. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rejoice rather because your names are written in heaven. Where are they written? They're written in the Lamb's book of life. Philippians 4, 3 says, And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help these women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement, and also with my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. The Bible clearly tells us there is a book of life where the names of all believers are recorded. It's mentioned specifically eight times in Scripture. Hey, this is no one-hit wonder. This is a valid, established, recognized, biblical doctrine. The book of life. And it makes perfect sense when you think about it. I mean, we have lists of attenders there's roles of members. Teams have rosters of players. There are lists of registered voters of which you ought to be one. Amen. Make sure you vote this Tuesday. Make sure your voice is counted this Tuesday. Make sure you vote this Tuesday. There are all kinds of lists. There are mailing lists, seniority lists, phone lists. And heaven has a list of those who are saved. And it's called the book of life. That's the first book. I believe there are two other books present at the great white throne judgment. Again, this is the judgment of the wicked. Uh, another book is the book of the law. It's not only the Ten Commandments, although... That would certainly be a representative portion of the law, and it would certainly be plenty to weed out you and me. But the book of the law will be much more comprehensive than that, much more inclusive, much more wide-ranging than just the Ten Commandments. The book of the law will contain every ordinance, every judgment, every law, every regulation, every statute, every decree, every instruction, every command, every rule, every pronouncement, every edict, every directive. So comprehensive and so wide-ranging that you are destined to fail. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Trust me, you are a lawbreaker. Unless you've led a perfect life, you're a transgressor of the law. 
The book of the law reveals us for what we really are. And what we really are is all there in the third book present at the great white throne judgment. It's a record of our individual works. It's all your exploits from the past. It records not only every time you were caught breaking the law, but every time you broke the law, period. You know all those things that you did that you thought you got away with? You didn't. God saw it all. And it's all documented in the record of your works. It's your criminal record. It's your police blotter. It's a record of your criminal history. It's the record of all the laws transgressed by the individual being judged. Revelation 20 verse 12 clearly states they were judged out of those things that were written in the books according to their works. That ought to send a chill down your spine. One book is the book of the law. It's the law of God. All of it. Another book is the record of your life. And remember, according to James 2.10, whosoever shall keep the whole law and offend in just one point, he's guilty of it all. Now that may not seem fair, but that's the way the law works. And it's the same in any court of law. When you stand before a judge in a, in a courtroom, he's totally unconcerned with all the laws you've kept. Imagine standing in a court of law accused of grand theft auto, and you tell the judge how you've never murdered anyone and how you always drive under the speed limit. The judge is only concerned with the law you broke. And if you're found guilty, you're a transgressor of the law. You are a criminal. You are a lawbreaker. Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's a lawbreaker. There will be no denying the offense. The evidence will be compelling. The evidence will be overwhelming. The evidence will be indisputable. It will be as though you are standing naked and exposed with nowhere to hide. Today, many crimes are caught on surveillance camera. That's evidence beyond denial. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that what things soever the law says... It says to those that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world may become guilty before God. The amount of evidence presented against you at the great white throne judgment will leave you speechless and without defense. Guilty before God. Imagine what it will be like when it's all said and done to learn that you missed out on heaven. You'll try to list all the good things you did. But Jesus will say, as recorded in Matthew 7, 23, Depart from me, you that work iniquity, for I never knew you. The final verse of the account that I read in Revelation 20 says, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life 
was cast into the lake of fire. It's the, it's the final judgment. There will be no other recourse, no appeals process, no second chances. Perfect justice will have been carried out. The final judgment will leave you laid bare. Hebrews 4.13 says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest, revealed. Manifest means revealed. Neither is there any creature that's not revealed in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to answer to. There'll be no hope of fooling someone or making yourself look better than you really are. It's, it's just all out there. Young and old, Isaiah 20 says, naked and barefoot. When you're naked, there's nowhere to hide. You can't hide your flaws. There's no hiding. There's no escape. There's no pretending. No deception. No spinning the truth. Only the facts. The bare facts. Only the record. Only the reality of who you really are. It's all out there to be judged. So let's face those facts today. Let's deal with this right here, right now. It's not a matter of being good. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, by the deeds of the law, shall no flesh, no man, no woman, no person be justified in his sight. So what's the purpose of the law then? By the law is the knowledge of sin. Some bare facts. First of all, you're not good enough for heaven. The law exposes you as a sinner. The penalty for your sin, according to the Bible, is the death penalty. Ezekiel 18, 20, among other passages, says the soul that sins shall surely die. But God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin. That's what the cross is all about. Remember communion. But in order for the provision of God to apply to your life, you must receive it. You must intentionally receive it. The Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, To as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God. You see, one of the great lies, one of the great deceptions of the enemy out there, and you hear it all over the place, well, we're all children of God. It's not what the Bible says. To as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God. Three books. Let's picture this for just a second as I close. There's a gathering of people. It's the judgment of the wicked. Everyone there will be lost. But God in his ultimate fairness it's perfect justice gives you your day in court. And so there's this giant roster 
the book of life. You come forward one at a time. You give your name pages through the book of life. Your name's not the book of life. So now we take out the book of the law. We take out the record of your works. We hold them up next to each other. And if you violated the law in one point, just one point. Just one point. You're guilty of it all. Whose ever name is not written in the Lamb's book of life is cast into the lake of fire. There's no recourse. There's no appeals process. It's perfect justice. There won't be any mistakes made. Nobody that goes to hell it will never be a mistake so the judgment of the wicked it's, it's not till the end as if to say come come before it's too late as if to give you every opportunity every moment of your life another window another opportunity another chance that today might be the day that you confess your sins you acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Savior so that when that day comes and you stand at the judgment you're at the judgment seat of Christ and not the great white throne judgment that's why we're here today that's why we do what we do that's why you give in the offering that's why there's a church here at 3000 Hammond Avenue. That's why we're looking to hire a children's director. That's why we give to missions. Everything we do centers around a moment like this where someone down at youth convention, where someone in your neighborhood, where someone at your workplace can hear the gospel message and say, I want my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Would you bow your head? Lord, if there's someone here today, my prayer is that this would bring it all home. This would paint the picture clearly. It's the message of the prophets. It's the message of the wine press. There's a day of reckoning coming. And when you stand at the great white throne judgment, it'll be too late. The window of opportunity will be closed. The door of the ark will have shut. All of that adds importance to this moment. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, remember you can't earn salvation. You'll never be good enough. But Jesus came into this world knowing that you were lost. Gave his life on a cross. Paid your price. Paid my price. So that you could be saved. Now to as many as receive him, 
He gives the power to become a child of God. It's up to you to receive Him. If you're here today, you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, would you slip up your hand? When you slip up your hand, you're not joining our church. You're saying, Tom, I've never received Christ as my Savior, and I need to today. I want to be right with God. I want to begin to live for Him. If that's you, would you slip up your hand? Would you hold it high in the air so that I can see it and I can include you in our closing prayer in just a moment? If that's you, would you raise your hand? If you're a believer, would you pray right now? Would you call upon the Holy Spirit? I believe there's someone in the auditorium this morning and your heart's pounding. And you're saying to yourself, you know, I really want to do that. Maybe I can just do it between me and God. But I would say this. Maybe it's time to take a stand. Maybe it's time to make a public declaration. These young people got baptized today. It was a public declaration of the fact that they're saved. Do you have enough in you to say, I'll raise my hand and receive Christ as my Savior? If that's you, church, you're praying with me. Would you raise your hand if you need Jesus today? Would you raise your hand if you need Jesus today? The fact that no one raised their hand reminds me, church, of the job we have to do to invite people to church, to share the gospel. Lord, I thank you for these folks today. Lord, we're, we're privileged to be a part of the work of the kingdom. We do it because you've done so much for us. We're still so thankful for how you've touched my life, how you've changed my life, the difference you made in me. I just want to work for you. Lord, I pray for these folks as they reach out to their neighbors, to their co-workers. On the front lines of ministry, Lord, I pray you'd anoint them and use them. Pray for laborers. The field is white and ripe ready for harvest. Lord, that we might be laborers. Pray to help us to that end. In Jesus' name.